1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Wajma Osman, who is the author of the book, Television and the Afghan Culture Wars, brought to you by foreigners, warlords, and activists, published by the University of Illinois Press. Dr. Osman, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Reagan, for having me.
1: Great. I'm so glad that you um, are here on the show with us to talk about your to talk about your book. Um, and so we like to begin by just asking people, um, how did you come to write this book? Um, can you tell us about yourself, you know, your background and what sparked your interest in media in Afghanistan?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I'm originally from Afghanistan and i um, when the Soviet invasion happened, we became refugees in Pakistan. So then uh, we lived in Pakistan for four years and then I uh, immigrated to the US. We all, well, minus my father, he stayed behind, but the rest of us came here when I was 10 to the States, um, mostly the Northeast. Um, and so um, I always, maintained my cultural ties and tried to maintain my cultural fluency. And my father was there and I have um, other family there. So I would go back and forth. And so after um, 9-11, um, there was um, uh, a big spotlight on Afghanistan because, um, you know, the the um, thought at the time was that um, Afghans were responsible for nine eleven. I mean, since then, it's been complicated, of course, um, with Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and so forth. But um, at the time, I remember um, there was so much misinformation in um, the media um, that was circulating, um in the public, um, and most of the um, the discourse, or I should say, the dominant discourse at the time, in the media, including from um, academic experts, was categorizing Afghanistan as um, as despotic, a uh, people who are tribal, militant. Um, extremely misogynist things like that. And that's not to say that those elements don't exist, but I had seen from my own lived experiences that, um, there was so much creativity and, um, progressive movements and reform work being done over there. And so that was really what sparked, uh, My um, initial interest, because it was shortly thereafter, 9-11, that I started my master's program in Middle Eastern studies. And I was thinking about how to rectify some of these um, stereotypical um, notions of Afghans in Afghanistan that was having real world um, discriminatory consequences for Afghan Americans living here.
1: Um, and so, I wanted to begin the talking about the book um, by talking about the title. Um, and so, the book is called "Television and the Afghan Culture Wars." As I already said, brought to you by foreigners, warlords, and activists. And so, what are the Afghan culture wars, um, and what did the debates, I guess, with these culture wars revolve around?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I'm actually surprised no one's asked me that before, um, but. I, you know, I was very deliberate in titling the book um, and putting the word culture wars in the, in the title of the book because one thing I realized through my academic um, graduate training was that, um, you know, the way that Western history and ideas of democracy and nation building are written is very different than than the way that um, the discourses around or the dominant narratives around the global south and the global east are written um, and you know it's like in my um in my both masters and phd um, work i learned about um, all the different democratic um Formations that the West had invented and built upon, from um, glorifying settler colonialism to Habermas's um, cafe culture in Europe and so forth. And when I looked more closely at it, many of those projects were um, exclusionary and racist and sexist and so forth. But yet, you know, Western academics would. Draw the kernels of it that um, had the potential for democracy and pluralistic society, and for um, you know um, better human rights. But in the in the uh, east and in the south, that the same type of um, thing was not happening. And so, you know, I'll I'll actually I have my um, book with me. I'll read one um, part that I specifically talk about this, and I say the dominant image of Afghanistan as forever static and unchanging is so ingrained and rigidly fixed in the minds, policies, and theories of Western technocrats that there is no room for deviance or stretch of the imagination from these perceived notions. Thus, the history and present of Afghanistan cannot be seen on a continuum of change or swinging pendulum of culture wars like Western countries are afforded, even during brutally extreme repressive governments. And so I really wanted to focus on this idea that, you know, culture is not static and fixed, and places like Afghanistan are not stuck in time, or frozen in time, uh, or backwards, as they're oftentimes said. But that there are people historically and in the present who have been fighting for progressive change.
1: Yeah, thank you. So um, that 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 leads to basically the next question um, about you know people like the the non-static nature of culture and the people who have been fighting for progressive change, um, because in chapter one. You know, you recount this history of nation building um, projects undertaken by the Afghan government, and um, and then you also you know talk about these imperial projects that intervened within these you know nation building projects, um, and you include a particular period from the 1950s to the 1970s um, when the Afghan government was sending um, college students away for study abroad and was employing men and women to work for the government um, and and you know build a nation. Um, And you tell this story through a personal lens of your family. Um, And so how did you decide to include your family background um, in the book? And how does your account disrupt um, dominant ideas of Afghan history and culture?
2: Yeah, so it wasn't an easy decision to include my personal accounts, including my family's background and history in these important historical moments in Afghan um, history. Um, And partially that's because um, I've noticed that when you have lived experiences or you're a scholar from a certain region working on that region, that it's very easy for um, the dominant order or, um, you know, Um, institutional people to say that you're you that people like us are not capable of being objective right Um, that we're too steeped in it and too embedded in the culture to be able to zoom out and have that critical um, overview analysis that's needed in good scholarship and and I actually entirely disagree and I think more research into the scientific method has shown that it was never objective to begin with. That people always bring their perspectives, and so I um, wanted to be transparent about, about that. And that also has to do with um, with my my mentor, who my uh, mentor and PhD advisor, Ginsberg, among other committee members who are revisionist anthropologists who believe that you bring your embedded knowledge into something and you're transparent about that. Um, and so that's that's um, why ultimately I decided that even though on the one hand, it's a it's an um, academic study where I went into the archive and researched these historical moments, that at the same time, it was going to be only provide more of a a, a rich description if I brought in the experiences of my parents and my aunts and mo- uncles who took part in the, in the, um, uh, women's movement and, um, you know, civil rights movements and human rights movements that was happening from the fifties through the seventies in in a way similar to what was happening in this country.
1: Um, and so in your, um, in your book, um, you're really one of the cases that you're making is um, for ethnography of media and um, and ethnography as a research method in helping to discern the role and effects of media in the context of development. and And so you write on page fifty seven, and so I'm going to quote you, um, as a result of the destruction of many of its institutions, such as its media, arts, education, and museums, contemporary Afghanistan is culturally and nationally speaking particularly vulnerable and unsettled after four decades of war and instability Afghanistan will remain in a state of perpetual war um, and so the, uh, end the quote and so I was wondering if you could talk about conducting ethnography in this context um, and if you could give us a sense of you know what you ended up doing with your ethnography like um, who did you speak with um, you know, how, how many tel- What television stations did you visit? Um, and how did the unsettled conditions from war affect your research?
2: Yeah, that's a, um, a great question and a big question too. Um, so I'll start with um, the quote that you just read um, about how um, Afghanistan is culturally and nationally speaking Um particularly vulnerable and unsettled. And um, that's partially why I use the framework um, or the conceptual uh, theories of cultural imperialism in the book as well, because um, on the one hand, I think it's it's great that um, Afghanistan's media system has media from all around the world, right? So you can access 50 at any time, at least 50 television channels f- completely for free, um, and have access to media from the West, from Turkey to, to the bordering countries, from reality TV to dramatic serials and, and, um, you know, soap operas to, um, call-in shows, music videos, everything from everywhere. And I think that's terrific because it gives a window for Afghans on the world. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's also important for Afghans, and this is something I learned through my my ethnographic interviews, it's very important for people to develop um, a sense of, um, you know, what Afghan culture is. And after so many years of war, we lost so many talent to people being either killed in the wars or to dying of old age or becoming refugees elsewhere since, you know, more than a half of the country became refugees. And so, um, you know, one of the things that media producers stressed to me was the importance of original productions as well. And sometimes it's difficult for them to do that because it's so much cheaper to buy these subsidized, um, you know, uh, import import these uh, cultural products from um, other places. And then to the second part of your question about about what's it like to do, um, conduct ethnographic research in essentially a war zone. You know, many people say it's a post-conflict area, but it, it really, in many ways, is active with, with suicide bombings and international military campaigns and so forth. I mean, we'll see what the next... Um, you know um phases for afghanistan with biden's plans to withdraw the troops um but um that was i mean the simple answer is that was very challenging and difficult i mean ethnographic work in general i think is challenging as you know yourself a ethnographer and and um you know you you're leaving one home behind and you're trying to acclimate to another environment, uh, for a long duration of time, which is never easy. And then on top of that, in an environment where there's so much precarity and, um, um, security problems and issues, it's, it's doubly challenging. And so, um, I think as an Afghan American at times it became confusing in terms of my own, um, identity because I had to, um, very much, as much as possible, acclimate and try to assimilate for survival reasons. Um, And so sometimes it was like, oh, who am I, you know, amidst all of the other research I was trying to do. But, you know, ultimately, I, I commend the people in Afghanistan and particularly my interlocutors and the subjects of my study who are media makers in Afghanistan and, and reformers and human rights um, activists who um, you know, take great risks every day in order to move the culture forward um, in a very dangerous environment. And a number of, of people that I interviewed have since then either been targets of, of attacks, or, um, or have been killed. And so, you know, the, the challenges to me were nothing compared to them. And it's um, it's been a um, devastating aspect of my um, research to have known these people and see what they go through.
1: Uh, thank you. Um, and so also uh, with the book, you're, you know, obviously the book is um, about media in Afghanistan. Um, and so, you're making this case for um, global media and what we can learn um, outside of the, the United States um, or maybe outside of the global north context. Um, and so, in, in my own research, um, it intersects with media and communication studies. And one thing I learned in that field was that media studies tends to be dominated by media in the United States and Europe. Um, and so, you know, you push back on this in several ways, um, but one of this. Uh, one of the ways you push back is in thinking about how media is funded and you show us this very active media sphere um, which is funded partially through development in Afghanistan. Um, And so how is the media sphere in Afghanistan funded and how does this add to our understanding of the political economy of media?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question as well. Um, And, you know, I, I have an entire, chapter on questions of political economy as as we both know in our work it's very important to to track where the funding comes from because it does have a um bearing and usually a great impact on content and ideology and what type of cultural influence the media is going to have and so um Maybe the short way of, of answering it without getting into the details of all the different funding streams is that, uh, what I ultimately argue is, is that because, um, Afghanistan is not unilaterally, uh, under the influence or receives, um, media from just one country, namely the U.S., um, but in in reality it um the media proliferation is such that is very international in scope, and so there's media both actual media products and media funding coming internationally from all over the world that that um enables it to have more of um a public interest model, meaning that there's active competition between the different media venues and there's so many different media venues that um, the truth can ultimately, um, it, you know, they can be really rich debates and truthful conversations about things versus a, a highly commercial model, which is more monopolistic and promotes the ideologies of, of just uh, one of, you know, a dominant country. Um, and in many ways, you know, the U.S. itself is, um, has a, a highly corporatized and monopolistic media environment, and that's what it usually exports to countries. And so in this respect, Afghanistan is, has been lucky that it has been able to um, counterbalance some of that uh, media hegemony by, um, by building relationships with other countries.
1: Yeah, and that was was really interesting um, to read in that chapter where um, readers might be surprised by um, just the the breadth and depth of media um, availability in Afghanistan. Um, And so that was one of the things that I found to be particularly interesting as well. Um, And and that leads to the question of, I guess, what people might be actually watching um, in this media sphere. Um, and so in the book, you take us um, into some of the programming of Afghans, um, of what they might be watching. And I was struck by your statement. Um, I remember underlining it, that the news is one of um, people's favorite programs. And you also mentioned that on the news, they show quite a bit of violence with the objective of bringing about peace. And, you know, this struck me as different from an assumption in the United States, which is that, you know, showing violence will lead to more violence. Um and so why is the news uh, so popular and how can we think about this showing violence that can lead
2: to peace? Yeah, so I, I think I'll start by saying that the news, you're absolutely right, the news is very popular. Um, but p- part of my argument also is that that doesn't take away from how important a function, less serious programming and more entertainment programming in a war zone is. Um, serves and so it's it's one does not negate the other Afghans love the news and they also really um, need to have this more entertainment programming to offset the trauma of living in a war zone but um, the news is um is important because um, down to just giving very basic information on what areas to avoid because a suicide bomb has gone off or there's U.S. military activity over here for people to stay away from it. So it it really can mean not just learning about the world and learning about the policies of the international community in the U.S. and what it has in mind for the future of Afghanistan, which you know dictates much of what happens over there, but also just on an everyday level, just the difference between surviving and not surviving is so um, uh, attached to um, getting that kind of information from the news. And so every channel has news um, and the, most of the news uh, programming um, tries to be uh, as accurate as possible and not to disseminate uh, misinformation or disinformation campaigns as we have here, partly because if they do, there's so many other outlets that will provide different information and then those stations that aren't providing the full story or the true story will be shamed um, in many ways. And so to your question of of how that leads to um, showing a great deal of um, violence, That was something I noticed right away. And in the U.S., we don't have um, violence in um, the news for a variety of reasons. Partially what you said is there's this assumption that showing violence will lead to more violence. But partially it's because we have, as I said before, a highly commercial uh, media system which believes that... um, people should always be in a buying mode right so in a shopping mode and that seeing realistic violence on the news um, is going to turn people away and so in afghanistan i think the to put it shortly you know i'm i've I'm, i've written extensively on the impacts of violent imagery and and um, you know what what the consequences of that are. Um, But I think to put it more simply, I think the fact that they put um, an air, unedited real-world violence uh, relating to war, both from the international military presence as well as Afghan-on-Afghan sectarian violence, has the impact of turning people against war. And that's something... Um, and against violence more generally, and that's something that happened here as well historically with the Vietnam War, which is called the first tele- televisual war. Um, it's it's what spurred the anti-war movement. And the difference here is that when you see violence, it's a uh, Hollywood violence that's very glorified. And so when you have glorified and sensationalistic violence, then these young kids and you know teenage boys. Um, and that's why we have so much gun violence here. Watch it, and it just seems like there's, um, you know, it's glorified. It seems like a fun type of thing to do to have these semi-automatic weapons versus over there you see the aftermath. They show when when um, a bomb goes off or somebody gets shot, like they show the, the blood and the people crying and, and the people calling for help, and it's completely different experience. And it was something I was not um, used to seeing. You know, you're watching TV, you're having dinner, you're watching the news, and you don't see that in the US. um, But you see that there. And, and I can see why um, it has that effect of bringing about peace versus more violence. But I think there's more studies to be done on that.
1: Um, and so the, the role of women um, also seems to be central in your work. Um, and so both representations of women and the work of, of women in the media as reporters and show hosts, um, as well as audiences. And so I'm, I'm kind of simplifying this uh, a little bit. Um, but, but it appears that the role of women is also tied to the Afghan nation, Um, where more sort of conservative forces may wish to see women at home and more progressive forces may wish to see women have the choice to work. Um, And then there's also like added pressure from outside of the country with these attempts to, quote unquote, save Afghan women. Um, But all of this attention to women seems to um, put them in a very vulnerable um, position and render them like more vulnerable to violence. Um, and so can you expand on this role of women? Um, how do women's issues intersect with Afghan media and what vulnerabilities do they face?
2: Yeah, so the, the role of women in gender and sexuality more broadly was something that um, was of great interest to me from the start because partially uh, saving Afghan women was used as a justification post 9-11 to start the military operations that have now led to what's been dubbed as the "forever war." I think in um, in uh, October we're going to celebrate the 20th year anniversary of the U.S.'s longest war in Afghanistan. And so, from the start, um, I wanted to turn the dialogue about women's rights back to Afghans themselves and that was partially why I chose television because television is such an important medium and so many of the debates about um women's role in society and women's rights and the debates that you mentioned between more conservative groups and Islamists and more progressive groups as well as the outside forces um who also have this agenda of saving women were all happening um, through the media, in particular broadcast media. Um, and so um, I think, um, I think one of the things that I noticed or one of the takeaways that I had through my um, ethnographic research, is that um, the program the programs uh, that were more didactic, especially supported by Western funding uh, about women's rights um, that focused on issues like um, domestic violence, um, you know, some traditional mis- misogynist practices, um, um, you know, issues of, of child brides, um, honor killings, um, all types of other um, prevalent problems there currently um, were not um, as popular as some of the other programming that was produced by Afghan women themselves, and audiences wanted to see more of that, which um, had women in more um, in roles where they had more agency. So. Um, one of the, um, programs I talk about, which is actually, um, television, um, uh, I'm sorry, film in the film, uh, sector is, um, is Sabah Sahar who has her own, uh, film franchise and she's, she's, um, she plays, um, women, uh, heroine characters, like a traditional, um, um, horseback riding warrior and, um, She's the one that's saving Afghanistan right so um, she she plays uh, as part of a police officer. she herself is also a police officer in the Afghan um, uh, police there um, so um, other things I noticed is that in dramatic serials sometimes the villain the villainesses or the villainous female characters who rebelled against the um, your, the heteronormativity of the protagonist couple were also very popular, and then I also had the opportunity to be invited to um, the homo social theater worlds, and um, where there's a lot of gender play and cross dressing and things like that. And so, in those types of other formats, um, Afghan women were able to imagine themselves in in ways that, um, gave them hope and inspiration as opposed to just further dictating to them their reality. Um, so that was one of the, the things that I noticed. And aside from that, there's so many incredible, um, people in the media sphere and in the human rights sphere who, um, from lawyers to, uh, members of parliament, um, to, um, you know, journalists who are, um, doing such incredible work, um, that I think, you know, um, Western institutions need to defer to when they're, when they're working on gender policy over there.
1: So, absolutely. Um, and so, you you already spoke about the news um, media and, um, and and it's importance. And you said it you know it doesn't take away from the fact that people might want other forms of um, of entertainment as well, um, or you know other kinds of programs to watch in the you know in the media sphere. Um, and so you talk about uh, consumption in the book as well. Um, so it, it was interesting. The book it, it talks about you know political economy, um, the production of media. And then uh, as well as like a reading of media texts and then also consumption of media. So you, you get a very full um, uh, look into the media sphere in Afghanistan. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, ethnographic work, I think, as you mentioned, can really, you know, can really show us. Um, and, and so you look into consumption and you include the audience um, responses to the media. And I think this is in the, in the last chapter of the book. And one thing you note is the popularity of Indian soap operas or dramas. Um, And so I was wondering what you made of this popularity um, of of Indian soap operas uh, or or programming in the Afghan media sphere.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, with with soap operas as a genre more broadly, before I um, delve into Indian soap operas, is that it's been highly stigmatized in the West and media studies have shown that um, it's also been gendered um, female or feminized in many respects, right? So um, similar to rom-coms and other genres, you know, there's uh, people who are like, oh no, I would never watch soap operas or I would never watch rom-coms because, you know, that's what, you know, bored housewives do or all these other kinds of stigmas that we have about it. But In reality, in the rest of the world, and I think that's why it's important to have a sense of global media, which we don't really in this country because um, the media um, is uh, very exclusionary and keeps so much international media very intentionally out of um, the venues and channels here in the U.S. But in reality, what I was saying is that in much of the rest of the world, dramatic serials... Which is another way of calling um, soap operas, is very popular across genders. Um, and it's not something that's stigmatized. And um, partially that's because, and this goes to the case of um, Afghanistan in your question about um, Indian soap operas. Um, I think partially it's because, um, everyone can relate to the domestic, uh, stories, right? So they're very much about family life and family stories and, um, things that happen with, with, with siblings, things that happen with parents and with in-laws and, um, you know, things that we can all relate to. Um, and so for, um, and especially in Afghanistan, where where kinship networks are very important, I think in a way we live in a more individualistic society where some of those bonds are not as important here. But um, there, are people um, that I interviewed, uh, and I interviewed no, men and women who are um, avid fans of international soap operas. Everybody watches them, um, and. You know, the Indian and Turkish ones tend to be uh, most popular um, across my interviews. Um, and so I, I think uh, partially it was also because it was a way of, of enabling them, giving them the space to talk about their own um, domestic issues and challenging some of the, their gender roles and things like that through what they saw on screen. Their favorite characters being able to challenge some of these um, you know, patriarchal practices and so forth. And that gave them um, the courage to to bring up those issues in their lives.
1: Yeah. And so I wanted to move um, a bit from the book um, to talk about, I guess your work as a professor. Um, and so you not only do research on global media, but you teach about it um, as well. And so I was just wondering how you bring these insights from the book um, into your classroom. Um, What kinds of media might you, you know, might you include in your in your classes?
2: I mean, I think it's challenging because... um, the way we've been trained in the US or socialized, I should say, as American citizens is in a sense of exceptionalism at times, right? So that the whole world revolves around us and that other people need to pay attention to our media, but we don't necessarily need to pay attention to other people's media or news or lives or culture as much. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, need to go into the reasons behind that I think it's it's very complex and it's historically um, involved, but um, all that is to say that it is challenging to engage um, students and Americans more generally um, to take an interest in global media and the lives of people from other countries more broadly um, and I think maybe that'll shift because we have more immigrants from other parts of the world coming into the U.S., which, of course, immigration policy is an issue in of itself here. And then you have the global refugee crisis, where I think Afghanistan is once again number one and the, the most refugees. Um, I think Syria was number one before. Uh, and so... Um, to your question of um, how I engage people in it is I try to remind people about um, the importance of, of having um, a sense of, um, of media and people from other places because it really does open up a whole, whole new world to them. Um, and we can understand people so much better sometimes than we understand them through the talking head experts that we see on the news uh, versus watching watching um, their programming and their media and um, in certain ways I think the the online screening uh, platforms have been doing a better job of exposing people to it um, but I think these are challenging questions i you know I have I have one friend who says that when you talk about people and places from other places in the world, uh, from other parts of the world, that um, American people, their eyes just kind of glaze over, which is such a shame because the the world is... Um, a very diverse and beautiful place, and every place, um, as you know, you work in, in Brazil and in South America. Every place has um, so much to offer, and so many things we can learn from.
1: No, absolutely. And to your point about the sort of limitations of the U.S. media sphere, I always think about that when I'm in Brazil because I, you know, the media sphere there is just. Is, is much more diverse, and so I could go to a film and uh, go to a movie theater, and a film from like you know Sweden is playing or something. You know, of course with subtitles, but you know if I was and I always am reminded if I was in the U.S. I would never even know that that film existed because generally in our mainstream movie theaters we would not that film would not be you know being screened. Um, so I'm always you know I'm always reminded of that as uh, when I, when I'm there. Um, And so you also not only, you know, teach about film, um, and media, but you're also a filmmaker and, um, you shot a documentary called Postcards from Tora Bora. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the film, um, and, and if it relates to the book, um, in, in any way.
2: Yeah, I I think, um, I think the two do speak to themselves, to one another, the film and the book, um you know, and I, I was a filmmaker and a journalist and worked in the American media um, uh, sector before I, I went to um, academia. Um, and the the film um, started as a, tr- what we were trying to do is a documentary on women's rights post 9-11 and to assess whether, the uh, US interventions that were based on saving Afghan women and improving conditions there had actually uh, done that and then um, somehow along the way once we received pe- feedback from people people audiences were um, were gravitating more towards the personal stories so it became a personal. Um, narrative um and a a personal documentary um and so it it um is a trajectory of my family's experience becoming refugees um and also um the impact of war not just on my family but more broadly and the cost of what it does to um people's lives uh, and so forth. And so in that respect, um, it, it has a, a direct thread to um, the book, which also um, there's no way of avoiding war, sadly, when you're talking about Afghanistan because it's part of the present and the recent past, and its impact is, um, is um, profound on people's lives.
1: Absolutely. Um, so we've taken up um, enough, of your, enough of your time, and I wanted to thank you for sharing your work with us. Um, and just as a final question, um, now that the book is out, I was wondering if you are working on any new projects now, and then I obviously I realize I'm asking this question in the midst of, of a pandemic and, and other upheaval. Um and so, you know, if if it's not projects you're working on now, um, do you have other other projects or ideas that are on the horizon that you're thinking about?
2: Yeah, I I do have other projects. As you said, I think the the pandemic has taken a toll on all of us. Um so um I think uh, you know, there it it has uh it has impacted our production in that way. Um, but um, one of the things I'm I'm thinking about currently is um, uh, relates to a question you asked earlier, which is about the impact of um, showing violence um, on television and violent imagery more broadly, whether it's cell phones or YouTube or so forth. And I'm thinking about, uh, and I've been working on a comparative project, um, trying to connect um, the ways that um, racism and violent imagery work in this country with the ways that it works in the Minisa countries, so the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, um, around um, interviewing people and their reactions um, to watching different types of violent imagery and whether that creates more empathy or antipathy um, and here i'm I'm also um, trying to learn and study up on. Um, you know, uh, African-American uh, scholarship, which has written extensively on these issues of whether it's um, antebellum violence or other types of violence presently with Black Lives Matter and and how that impacts movements. So I'm trying to see the link between empathy and social movements as a result of showing more realistic violence. Um, yeah, and I have one article published from that, which is called agents and villains of the security state, but I'm expanding it and trying to um, conduct some more ethnographic research around that.
1: Wow, that sounds really, really interesting and timely um, research and very, very important. So we'll look out for that um, as well. Um, So I've been speaking with Dr. Wajma Osman, the author of Television and the Afghan Culture Wars, brought to you by foreigners, warlords and activists, published by the University of Illinois Press. And so thank you for writing this book and thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Reagan, for having me.